Well, we want to welcome everyone this morning in both of our worship services. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Job, the Old Testament book of Job. Do you know the book of Job? 42 chapters. It's a long book uh, as Old Testament books, as Bible books are measured. Uh, But I think I can sum it up in just two words, 42 chapters, two words. Here they are. Slow down. That's the message of the book of Job. You really have to understand something of the structure of the Old Testament. And and you may know this already, but the Old Testament is composed of 39 books. That's what we call them. Maybe chapters would be a better word. But 39 of these books, the first 17 really tell us the story of how God has worked through his people. It really begins in Genesis chapter one, goes all the way through Esther 10. And that's the end of the story. You may not have recognized that. Esther 10, it's just right before Job chapter one. That's the end of the story. Nothing else happens in the Old Testament after Esther 10. But if you've turned to Job 1, just one page past Esther 10, you recognize you're only about halfway through the Old Testament. So what about the rest of this? Well, there are 17 chapters all the way through Esther that give us the story, the history, and then there's the book of Job. It's unconnected, it's undated. We don't know when this event took place. There are no kings or prophets named in the book of Job to help us to figure out exactly where it fits into the timeline of things. So we've got these 17 historical books and then this timeless book, the book of Job. And then there are 20 additional books in the Old Testament that really become the commentary to what we've already read. The last 20 books, no new history takes place in those books, but here we find the songs and the prayers and the sermons and the prophecies of people who have already been mentioned in the first 17 books. It's almost as if the last 20 books of the Old Testament are the appendix to the first Uh, appendices, I should say, to the first 17 books. Not that they're not as important, but there's no new history there. So what about this book right in the middle, the book of Job, that doesn't really seem to be connected to the ones that come before it or the ones that come after it? What's the purpose of the book of Job? Well, I think it's exactly that. It is an indicator assigned to us to slow down, You see, if you read the first 17 books, if you read through the history of the Old Testament, it is very easy, if you're not careful, to come to believe that the message of the Bible is that if you will do what God says to do, then God will bless you, life will be easy, there will be no problems, you will be healthy, so will your children. If you will do what God tells you to do, then God will bless you. If you don't do what God tells you to do, then God will not bless you. In fact, God may curse you. And you can get that message very easily from the first 17 books of the Bible and not recognize that there's much, much more to this than that message. In fact, I think that's one of the problems in Christianity today is that so many people know only that message. 
There are churches that only preach that message. Do what God says, expect God's blessings into the story. And we think that really God's whole relationship with us, that God's relationship with creation is just about blessing those people who follow the rules. And so then comes along the book of Job that says, slow down. There's more to this. And this is important because I am fearful that we are not explaining the whole message of the Christian faith and that we're misexplaining the gospel because so many people have just embraced this false understanding that the whole thing is about follow the rules and God will bless you. I remember at my last church, we did an entire staff meeting one time under the sign, a marquee sign of a sister church because I wanted the staff to look at the message of that sign and understand how much it was a miss when it comes to the Bible. The sign said, and I wish I could remember the exact wording, but it basically said, you, and this is their message to the community, this church, this is their gospel message. Follow the 10 commandments or you will go to hell. Now, that, that would probably be a pretty good sermon. You could get some amens from that. But church, tell me, is that the message of the Bible? That simply following everything the best you can, the way God says to do it, and God will bless you and there'll be no problems and you'll spend eternity in heaven. You're good enough, will be good enough. And if you don't do that, then God will bring judgment in your life. You'll get sick, your kids will die, bad things will happen, you'll lose your job. It all depends upon that. God's here to bless you or God's here to curse you, depending on how you respond to the rules. I found an article yesterday, uh, coincidentally, I suppose, uh, in the Washington Times. You wouldn't think a secular newspaper would get the gospel right uh, exactly like this newspaper did. Uh, but the headline, and you can find it, it's still online. Uh, the headline, uh, something to the effect of the church today has exchanged the true gospel for a fake Christianity. And so I thought, I should read that article. And the, the article said that in many churches today, instead of preaching the true gospel, in, instead of talking about a biblical faith, churches are talking about something called MTD. And I had no idea what that was. I had to read further. But MTD is the moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, I didn't know what that was either, maybe you do, but, but if you break it down, here are the three pieces. Moralistic, just do the best you can to do what you think is right. Therapeutic, then God will bless you. God will help you and fix you and make your life happy and easy. And then deism, other than that, God's not really involved in life. And this article suggested that most churches, that's their message. And the problem is, that's not the message of the Bible. And so Job falls right into the middle of the Old Testament, right after these historical books to say, now, wait a minute, do not assume from these stories that God's just about blessing those people who follow some rules, cursing those who do not, and that's all 
that God is about. So what does the book of Job say? Well, it presents a completely different perspective on faith. It, it, it presents a love for God that is not connected, not directly connected with this just follow the rules and God will show you his kindness. There's more to the faith and this, this will challenge you. We're going to spend the next three or four weeks, uh, if the Lord allows, just walking through the book of Job and letting Job challenge us to have an authentic biblical faith. It'll present some things that we'll have to wrestle with. It'll bother us on some of its pages. But I think at the end of this, it will refine in us a faith that we know is genuine and biblical. So having said that, I think the best thing to do is is just to begin at the beginning. Look with me, Job chapter 1, verse 1. I should say before we read the chapter, and we're going to read the entire first chapter. I'll go quickly. Uh, But the book of Job, 42 chapters, as I said, is for the most part a poem. There's some prose in the beginning, about a chapter and a half, and there's about a half chapter of prose at the end. And, And in those two sections, we really have the story of what happened with Job. You may know that story. The most interesting parts, though, are the dialogues that happen between Job and his friends and the Lord that happen in poetry, which means we're going to have to work a little harder to understand it, but in this long poem that we find in the middle of the book. And so today we're going to look at really the setup for the story. We'll look at chapter one, a little of chapter two, and then next week we'll dive into these conversations between Job and his friends, and then ultimately Job and the Lord. Well, let's look. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep and goats, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. And so he was a farmer. He was a successful farmer and businessman, had a godly family, uh, seemed that God's hand of blessing had been on him. Uh, He was a righteous man. He did the right thing. In fact, he was the most righteous man alive in his day. Verse 4 tells us more good things about Job. It says his sons used to take turns having banquets at their homes. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. And that was Job's, Job's regular practice. Job cared not just for the success of his children. Listen to this. He cared for the spiritual success of his children. And that's rare. It was rare in his day. It's rare in our day. That's so important. So that's Job. He seemed to do everything right. So far as we know, he did everything right. But things change in verse 6. It says, one day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, Where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered, and walking around on it. So this really raises more questions than it answers. We'll perhaps 
dig through some of these in the weeks to come, but there is a meeting in heaven. God is leading the meeting, of course. There are angels there, and Satan is there, the archenemy of God. And so one important theological truth I just want to note here, there's so many we could talk about, but one I want you to note, because we'll come back to it in a later message, it says that Satan was roaming through the earth. What does that tell us about Satan? He is not everywhere, right? He is not omnipresent. He has to go from one place to another. Now, just hold that thought for a week or two. Let's look at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else is on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. And so God seems to brag a little bit on Job. Satan, look at Job. I don't know about you, but I would rather God not brag on me to Satan. <laughs> Just leave me out of the conversation. But God brags a little bit on Job and says, look, Satan, you're out roaming the earth looking for those uh, who are making trouble. Look for Job because he's a man who follows me completely. And then verse 9, Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Now that's an important question. Satan says, God, why do you think Job follows you? Does Job follow you because Job loves you or because you have shown him kindness? Now, that's an important question. It was an important question for Job and we're gonna see the answer, but it's an important question for all of us, right? Why do you follow God? Why are you here this morning? Why do you sing and why do you give? Why do we worship the Lord? Is it because we love God or is it because of some protection that we expect from God? Is it some gift? Is it some prayer that we hope to see answered? Verse 10 says, haven't you placed, these are the words of Satan, haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan says, if you will remove your protection from him, if you'll let some hardship come into his life, he'll turn on you just like that. Well, is that true? Verse 12 says, very well, the Lord said to Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a, land, a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the presence of the Lord. Uh, there are a lot of questions there. I know we'll perhaps come back to those, but, but, but God says, okay, Satan, let's see. Verse 13, one day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabaeans swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And so this calamity has come upon him. 
Verse 16, he was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, God's fire fell from heaven. It burned the sheep and the servants and devoured them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 17, the messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported, the Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them away, and they struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So three disasters in a row. Now, can I just give you an aside? Please don't say that disasters happen in threes. Do you hear people say that? That is the biggest superstition. That's just not something Christians should say. And if you need some Bible evidence, look to verse 18, number four. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house and suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died and I alone have escaped to tell you. So disaster upon disaster, he's lost his wealth, he's lost his family, everyone but his wife, which we'll learn over the next few weeks may not have been a blessing uh, for Job. Uh, She speaks twice in the book of Job. One time she tells him uh, to just give up, curse God, and die. The other time she tells him that his breath stinks. So the devil chose to leave her in place, uh, but he took everything else away. Verse 20, we see Job's response. Then Job stood up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. That was their the way they would express their grief. And he fell down to the ground and worshiped, worshiped. Well, what would you say at a time like this? Verse 21, saying, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now we'll come back to that uh, briefly in a moment. Let me tell you the story of chapter two. Uh, We've read enough uh, passages. Uh, Job, of course, keeps his faith and he doesn't waver. So there's another meeting in heaven and uh, God points out the fact that uh, Job's faith is still intact and Satan says, well, it's because you've protected his health. If If you'll allow me to destroy his health, then he'll turn. And so God gives permission for Satan to destroy his health. Again, that raises some questions that we'll come to uh, in, a, in a later sermon. And, and then Satan does that, destroys Job's health. Uh, he is uh, just in misery. Uh, he is in such bad health. He is so stricken with disease that friends come to look at him and can hardly recognize who he is. It says they came and they were speechless in the beginning for days. They didn't even know what to say. It looked so bad. But still, Job's faith remained strong. That's a different kind of faith, isn't it? Now let's go back for just a moment uh, to verse to verse nine. That's where we paused a moment ago. That, that's where Satan began to test Job's faith. Look at the words again, because they're important. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? And now we know the answer. Job feared God because Job feared God. Job didn't love God or follow God because of his wealth. He didn't follow God because of his health or because of his family. He didn't follow God because of the blessings of God or the kindness of God. But he followed God because God is God. 
God is sovereign and holy and beautiful. God is pure and righteous. God is all-powerful and all-knowing. And so Job revered God because he's God, because of who he is, not because of how he can bless. In fact, if you look at chapter 2, verse 3, I do want you to read one verse there. It says, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. And then look at the last part of that verse. He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him for no good reason. That's what you want the Lord to say about you. Christians, you want the Lord to say that even when your life is hard, even when the doctor report is not good, even when the bank account is is negative, even when you lose your job, even when your marriage is shaky, even if your kids rebel, you want God to say of you, he still remains. He still holds the integrity of his faith. That's the kind of faith that Job had. And that's a different kind of faith than what we talk about today. That's a different kind of love for God than than churches often present today. So here's what I want to do. And I'm going to be as quick as I can. I want to show you five quick pictures of this kind of faith. Because you might ask, is this normal? Well, it's not normal in the sense that it's common. Most people don't follow God even when things are tough. So it's not normal in that sense, but it is normal in the sense that this is the kind of faith that God expects us to have. This is the expected, this is the authentic faith. And I want to show you five quick pictures of it. We'll start right here with Job and we'll revisit this. And so if you're looking at your outline, point number one, Job, love does not demand compensation. Why did God, why did Job rather follow God? It wasn't so that he would be protected because when the protection was removed, Job continued to follow God. Why did Job follow God? Was it because that God had blessed his children? No, because when Job lost his children, Job continued to follow the Lord. Job did not follow God for the compensation, for the reward. He followed God because God was God. We should not follow God because he shows us kindness. He does show us kindness, by the way. I don't want to take away from that. God does give us protection. God does pour blessings into our lives. God loves us like his children. But we don't follow God because of his kindness. We follow him because he is worthy of our worship. We can all think of examples. And I'm thinking of some now that it would embarrass people for me to tell the story. But but we all know examples of a marriage, husband and a wife, and they get older, and the man or the woman, one or the other, uh, their health fails. Maybe there's dementia. And so for practical, in practical ways, the marriage, well, it no longer functions. The, the spouse that is, that is ill, the spouse that is uh, suffering from dementia can no longer be the blessing to the other spouse that he once was or that she once was. The benefits of the marriage have ended for the healthy spouse. But, and you're thinking of examples, I'm thinking of examples, often you see that healthy spouse give years of her life 
or decades of his life sometimes taking care of someone who may not even remember their name. Why do you do that? Why does a person do that? Well, it's because their love is no longer about some cost benefit analysis. It's not that I love my wife because here are 25 things she does to bless me. No, it's because I just love my wife and I love her when she blesses me and I love her when she does not or cannot bless me. See, it's a different kind of love. It's a love based on who somebody is, not based on what someone does. That's the kind of love that Job has uh, for the Lord. Now, the Lord is not disabled, and he does not need our pity, but we should love God because of who he is. And, and, and that love we see in that, in that aged couple's life should be but a dim shadow of the kind of love we have for God when he brings protection and when even life is, is hard. Have you ever made a deal with God now, don't raise your hand, but I imagine most of us have, where you get in trouble, you get in a bad situation, things are hard, the report's not good, the job is strained, and maybe you said something like this, God, if you will get me out of this situation, okay, does this sound familiar? God, if you'll get me out of this, then I'll do that, right? If you'll get me out of this, then I'll do that. Now, a lot of problems with that, but what's the biggest problem? What you're saying is, God, I'll love you if you'll do something for me. You, you see that? If you'll bless me, if you'll protect me, if you'll rescue me, then I'll love you. But it's not love if it's simply in response to a payment that you've received. No, if you love God, you'll love God whether he rescues you or not. You'll love God whether he protects you or not. You'll love God because he is God, not because you've made some bargain. And so we see here in Job that love does not demand compensation. Very quickly, let me show you the story of Shadrach. You know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three teenagers. They've been exiled. They've been captured and taken to another part of the world. Uh, by some pagan king, and they're forced in this new place to bow and worship this, this statue that's been set up for people to worship the king. Well, these three teenage boys knew that they couldn't do that because they worshiped the one true living God. And so they refused to bow. The king calls them forward and says, I'll give you one more chance, and if you do not bow, I'm going to throw you into that fiery furnace. Now, what did these teenagers do? What was their faith made out of? Did, did they have a bargain with God? You get us out of this, then we'll do that? No, listen, I'll just read it quickly. Daniel chapter three, verse 16 says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer to this question, which means we don't even need to talk about this. We've already decided. Verse 17, if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. He said, we don't have any concerns. We know our God is strong enough. And then the next verse is the amazing one. It said, but even if he does not rescue us, 
We want you as king to know. We want this to be uncertain. We want this to be clear. We want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. They said, we worship God. And we worship God if he protects us from the furnace, but we also worship God if we end up in the furnace. Either way, we're worshiping God. Now let me take you to the next picture, Asaph. You may not know the name Asaph, uh, but the lesson we learn here is love does not keep score. Uh, Asaph was one of uh, David's worship pastors, and he wrote about a dozen psalms. We read one of those last week, Psalm 50. Uh, But I want to draw your attention to Psalm 73. This is not a psalm we pay great attention to. It may not be one you're familiar with, but the last half of the psalm is so interesting. So I'm going to read to you some verses. Psalm 73, 12. And I think we can show these to you on the screen. It says, look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease and they increase their wealth. So Asaph, a godly man, he looked around and he saw that there were wicked people that seemed to be more blessed than he was. They had more sheep than he had. They were healthier. They were stronger. Their kids were doing better. And he said, this isn't fair. I'm following God. They're not. Looks like they're more blessed than I am. Verse 13, did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? Now, that's an important question. Asaph said, have I been following God for nothing? For nothing? Now, what does that question tell you about his motivation? Am I following God for nothing? The implication is, God, I was following you so that you would bless me more than them. And they're more blessed, so am I following you for nothing? And then the rest, of the, the rest of the hymn is beautiful. He comes to some realization. He, he's praying, God, have I followed you from nothing? And he hears from God. And here's how he responds in verse 22. I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal towards you. He said, God, I'm, I'm, I'm like an animal. You know, animals like you if you treat them well and they don't if you don't. And he said, I'm just acting like an animal. Verse 23, yet I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? I desire nothing on earth but you. He said, let those people have the gold. I have you, and you're better than the gold. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. He said, my flesh may fail. He says, I may get sick. I may have cancer. I may die. I may have a heart attack. But my my treasure is not my health. My treasure is my God, whether I'm healthy or not. Authentic love does not keep score. The unknown heroes of Hebrews, um, there's a chapter, chapter 11 in Hebrews that goes through the, the champions of the faith, people who did great things and received great blessings. And you get to the Uh, Pastors love to preach about the first half of that list, but you get to the second half, people don't like to preach on that, people don't like to hear about it, but let me just read you those four or five verses. It says, others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they died by the sword, they wandered in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and in holes in the ground. And all these were approved because of their faith, through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. 
They had a faith that remained even when life was hard. And then I want to come back to Job just, just very quickly. And I want to go to those verses that we skipped, verse 20. Uh, well, we read them, but I, I want you to see them again. It says, then Job stood up and tore his robe. This is chapter one. He shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshiped, saying, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. What he did is he recognized that God was sovereign, that God was in control. And he didn't know. Did, did you know that Job, so far as we know, he never knew what happened in Job chapter one. He dealt with this. He, he never had the information that we have. But he knew this, that God was sovereign. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His understanding that God was sovereign, meaning that God is in control, was enough for him to honor God even in the hardships, even in the difficulties of life. It assured him that God was in control. It reminded him that Satan has been conquered, that ultimately God is Lord over Satan. And it guaranteed him that one day his suffering would end. And because he knew and trusted that God was in control, he could survive and worship and honor God even in the hard, hard times of life. You know, the way you determine the value of something, the value of anything, the value of your house, how much is your house worth? Well, you just would compare it to whatever somebody would pay you for it, right? That's how much it's worth. Uh, you compare one thing to the other and, and that's how you know the value. How do you know the value of your love for God? We see here Job, his love for God, his trust in God was so valuable. He lost everything, but it remained. So many, many years ago, Augustine, uh, one of the leaders of the church in the first few centuries following Christ, he preached a message where he gave people a test. And I want to give you the test he gave his people to help them see the value of their faith, to help them see if they had a faith like Job had. He said, imagine that you stand before the Father and God says, I will give you anything you want, anything with no limits and no consequences. You can have anything you name, but if you take it, you will never know me again. You will never see the face of the Lord what would you do? And he says, if you hesitate, if you hesitate, it says your faith is not as firm and as mature as Job's faith. Because Job said, all I have in heaven is the Lord. I'll tell you, just from your pastor's perspective, what's my answer to the question? Uh, well, I'm with the Apostle Paul. He said, my goal is to know God better, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, but I do not consider myself yet to have him take hold of it. I know I've got a long ways to go. But here's what I want us to do in response to these pictures of faith and the question, the question, how valuable is the Lord to us? I want you to do two things. We're going to have a time of decision, a time of invitation. I want you, first of all, to ask God to help you know him better 
and to love him more. God, how can I love you better and know you more? And then secondly, I want you to thank him that because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that even when my faith is, is less than perfect, that because of, the, because of what Jesus has done, I am forgiven of my sins. Heads bowed, eyes closed for just a moment. Father in heaven, I want to have the kind of faith that Job had. I want to love you for who you are. I know I come far short of that way too often. Show me in these moments how I can love you better and know you more. And help me to be thankful that there's no condemnation because of the blood of Jesus Christ as I reach out to you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.